0: Hello everyone, welcome to the Swine Disease Reporting System. This is the report number 39. My name is Edison Magalhães here at Iowa State University.
1: Hello, my name is Giovanni Trevisan here at Iowa State University.
2: Hello, Daniel Linhares also with Iowa State.
0: And today we're going to cover the findings for the, the, the SDRS for the, the month of April 2021. But first, let me introduce you guys, our guest here. We have our special guest today, Dr. Eric Burrough. Uh, he's a professor here at Iowa State University and leads the ISU uh, VDL diagnosticians team. And also, Dr. Burrough uh, is the current vice president of the American Association of Veterinary Laboratory uh,
3: Diagnosticians Association. Thank you, Dr. Burrough, for your time. Glad to have you here today. Sure, yeah. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to uh, discussing the SCRS today. Great. Let's get started. We have a, a, an overall question here
0: for you first. So, in your opinion, what is the value uh, of programs such as, as the SDRS for the swine industry when we look to those mega trends?
3: Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. You know, historically, there have been kind of anecdotal reports or maybe even just opinions about certain seasonal patterns of uh, pathogen recognition or disease diagnosis, even temporal increases in different diseases. But you know, until now, we really haven't had tools that could let us screen and, and view those patterns, uh, at least not graphically. You know, when we really wanted to do this maybe five or six years ago, it would require a whole lot of manual collection and, and manipulation of data, which can be prone to error. So this, this ability to just continuously look at the data, I think, is, is really useful to see those patterns and variances. You know, I think at the end it lets us just generate better questions, and, and those questions can then let us potentially time specific mitigation efforts and see if they change things then um, you know, as we move forward and, and use the system to look at changes uh, forecasting.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Thanks for your points. So let's get started here on the first page of the, the SDRS, which is the page that covers uh, PCR detection for PERS. Uh, Giovanni, what are the, the highlights for the, from this month?
1: Well, during the month of April of 2021, there was a moderate increase from virus detection and then that was coming basically from the win-to-market age category. When we look for that detection at a state level, we saw this increase in detection that was occurring in Nebraska, Ohio, and more recently at the end of the month in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So, uh, there was this question to the device group, what has been contributing and they mention for us that there is a contribution from these animals that was placed coming from uh, positive south farms those broke during the winter. And additionally, there was some movements, more specifically in Ohio, of the positive pigs that entered the state and contributed for this increased activity. One thing that we continue to do was monitoring this virus 144 lineage 1C variant strain situation. Mm-hmm. And the advisory group mentioned for us that the early breaks farms that occur, they are now stable and are deriving very low prevalence peaks to the winter farm farms. Mm-hmm. But there is some breaks that continue to occur especially when there is contact with this strain with herds that did not see this strain before. Now that we go through the summer time, it's expected to have low breaks and low activity of purse virus in general. But the advisory group reminds us that we need to keep an eye, especially during the fall and winter months, for a reemergence of these strains again.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Great, Giovanni. Thanks. Dr. Buro, in that point, so every now and then we have this emergence of, of new strains for, for PERS. What would be uh, your advice for, for, for the few veterinarians to quickly Identify and diagnose those, those new emerging strains in the field.
3: Sure. So, you know, as a diagnostician on a case, we generally aren't familiar with a, a system's historical issues with PERS, whether they're, you know, have low incidence or frequent incidence with PERS. And, and even beyond that, we're very unfamiliar with the sequences that they might have. So, to me, anytime a severe or unexpected PERS infection is, is reported from the diagnostic lab, then sequencing has value. And, you know, if people are aware of it, they can ask our laboratory to produce a system-specific dendrogram so they can actually compare system uh, mm-hmm. detections in their own against what they've had previously and maybe see, well, is this something new or different? Uh, and they can even compare it to other uh, detections in their region. You know, I, I think using that sequencing tool is, is invaluable, you know, beyond just whatever the RFLP pattern is, but actually putting it into a dendrogram and saying, okay, how does the entire sequence compare with other things that we've detected in our flow before?
0: Yeah, great point. So now moving on to the next page, which is the page of uh, enteric coronavirus detection by PCR for PD, Delta coronavirus, and, and, and TGE. Giovanni, what are the highlights from the month of, of April 2021?
1: Well, detection of PD was similar to March and was detected original activity of PD in the state of Illinois. Delta coronavirus is another situation that is above the expected since uh, January. And that's mostly contributed by some early breaks that occur and continue deriving those peaks to a finishing site. So in that regard, there is more testing to monitor and surveil this agent that was applied, Mm -hmm. and that else contributed for high positivity. The big point that we have this month is that after a year, since May of 2020 up to April of 2021, Thirty-six thousand cases. More than hundred thousand samples have been tested for Tg, and only eight cases are positive for was positive for that agent. So that means we are having a very low circulation of this agent inside of the population that has been tested.
0: Great. And Dr. Burak, here we, in terms of Delta coronavirus, if we compare to previous year, we detection PCR detection of Delta coronavirus. For this time of the year, for the the, be- the beginning of twenty twenty one, was above the expected. So, have you noticed something different in terms of of clinical presentation of and, and type, extent, or magnitude of, of the lesions in those cases?
3: No, I would say we haven't. Um, I mean, we've also noticed that there's a increased number of these cases that are coming up positive for delta coronavirus than what we had seen historically. And, I think what's most interesting is it just reminds us how this is a, you know, all of these coronaviruses are different. You know, TGE, Mm -hmm. PED, and and Delta, even though they're all coronaviruses, they behave very, very differently. Uh, It's very intriguing to all of us that TGE essentially disappeared after PED uh, came. But now we're seeing this, what I would call almost like a delayed spread of Delta coronavirus. At least that's what it seems like to me. We're we're seeing this um, slowly work its way through. And, And what that means, I don't know. I Mm -hmm. certainly don't think anything has changed in disease expression, and perhaps it just means that we're now seeing Delta Corona start to um, move into herds where it hadn't been before. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you.
0: So moving on to the next page, which is the the mycoplasma detection by PCR page, page number three. Giovanni, what are the the highlights from this month's report?
1: So detection of mycoplasma pneumoniae was similar in April when compared to March, even Though a moderate increase was observed in South Farm, that we need to keep in mind that it was less than 100 cases that was tested in these months. Mm-hmm. So when we look at regional level detection of mycoplasma hyalurmonic, was within state-specific baseline for all the level uh, monitor states.
0: Okay, thank you, Giovanni. That was it for our uh, PCR detection for mycoplasma. So that's what we cover for the, the street pathogens in that part of the SDRS. Now we're going to move to the next uh, section of the SDRS, which is the disease diagnosis. Uh, basically, co- we collect data from the ISU VDL, the diagnostic code data. And Giovanni, what were the highlights in terms of disease detection uh, based on the ISU VDL data? At
1: the end of March and the beginning of April, we saw some activity of agents that are classified as respiratory, urogenital, and musculoskeletal, and more specifically two agents that was influenza A and porcine circovirus type 2 had a significant increase in number of cases, what we call signal for the number of diagnoses of these agents.
0: So a question for you, Dr. Uh, so the disease-diagnosis process requires adequate tools and very well-trained uh, personnel at the, the, the VDL. And the, the ISU VDL has developed uh, the disease diagnostic code uh, coding system that you guys developed to record the conclusions that are reached by the diagnosticians when evaluating each case. So how can I see a system like that can be used to, uh, to advance data science in, in animal health, in your opinion?
3: Sure, so this system was designed to have you know four different very key components that are all interrelated. So the first part was you know the system affected. And so like Giovanni mentioned, um, he, he saw some signals in respiratory cases. And so mm-hmm. what that means is any case that comes to us with a respiratory signal, it's going to get a code that has respiratory in it. Um, you know, so systems would be respiratory dig- uh, digestive, nervous, or systemic. And then we also categorize the insult type, so bacterial, viral, parasitic, toxic, so that we know the general uh, type of insult that that case was associated with. Lesion, so pneumonia, enteritis, meningitis, and then the last part is the disease name or etiology. And, And the reason for doing that and the reason we set the code system up this way is to create the right type of denominators, if you would, so that when you go back and make this kind of assessment to say, oh, we're seeing more of this particular disease, well, How does that correlate to the total number of respiratory cases that you have? Because just because you have an increased number of flu detections, if you also had a similar increase in total number of respiratory cases, it just may be that you had more cases, right? And if you don't have accurate denominators, then those things really aren't very useful. So this coding system was designed to ensure that the denominators were correct when people would be looking at that percentage of cases or those types of things.
1: And those are that's a great tool, Dr. Berg. And when you look for disaggregated data from the VDL, there is a lot of information. And sometimes we need to be aware: what is the potential source of misinterpretation that can arrive when extrapolating this VDL data to other U.S. swine population?
3: You know, I think that's that's you know, kind of follows from that first part about having accurate denominators. It, you know, you have to understand the limitations of the coding system. If your coding system doesn't um, doesn't uniformly apply codes to, to different situations, then you can easily misinterpret um, the data. There's a couple of things that I think are are important to know, too, and, and one is that the type of confounders that can be in VDL data. So, as I mentioned before, just simply increased sampling can change these numbers drastically. You know, what might do that would be maybe a big, large-scale surveillance effort that mm-hmm. a, a large company decided to undergo, and that would increase the number of cases. Allied industry every once in a while can have an interest in a a pathogen, so they financially support a bunch of investigations that otherwise might not come to the laboratory, and that can drive numbers. Um, We can even have changes in VDL assays where maybe the sensitivity changes, and all of a sudden that starts to show more positives for a specific disease just because we're able to detect it more frequently. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the last piece, we can even have new diagnosticians start in the laboratory or people can have new veterinarians starting in the field and they have different diagnostic questions, right? They they run different sets of tests, they send in different types of samples, and all of those things have to be taken into consideration. So, you know, the the biggest thing is anytime you're looking at VDL data, you have to think, you know, this is this is interesting. I see a pattern, I see a change. That gives me a new question, and then you have to take that question further. I think trying to draw conclusions from VDL data can be can be challenging.
1: Wonderful. Great great comments, Dr. Burug. Thanks for sharing that. And on that DX code that was developed, there is one specific component that counts not specified. And that comes out every month in the reports as a, a proportion of the case within the respiratory and digestive case. So what does the not uh, specified means?
3: Yeah, not specified is really easy to, to misinterpret, right? Um, in our data, not specified could mean that there was no code available in that category. So in other words, respiratory, viral not specified, could mean that it was a virus that we detected, but it's not common enough to get its own code. It could be that it looks viral, but we didn't detect anything, so maybe it's a novel pathogen. It could mean that it was um, negative for a specific insult type based on lesions. It could mean that testing wasn't requested or allowed by the submitter, so we couldn't make that confirmation. You know, anytime we can't definitively say this was salmonella, We would call it bacterial colitis, not specified. Even though we might think it looks like salmonella, maybe they just sent fixed tissues and they didn't ask for bacte culture, so we couldn't confirm it. A lot of those things are going to come down as not specified because it just simply means that we couldn't confirm it.
1: And how can practitioners help you in once we meet in samples to uh, guide to uh, of more specific, uh, ask more specific questions about those samples.
3: Yeah, so in order for us to apply a diagnostic code, we need, you know, kind of our convention in the laboratories, we need two lines of evidence. I either need clinical history and a lesion or a lesion and an analyte, you know, two of those pieces of data to be comfortable in applying a code. And so, again, if if there was historical information of, you know, this pig or this flow of pigs was positive for salmonella last week, and then you send me a set of just-fixed tissues and I see lesions of salmonellosis, well, I'd call that salmonella. That makes sense. We have two pieces of data, previous salmonella in the last week plus the lesions that I see. Or if you were to tell me 80% of the pigs are coughing and we detect flu at a very, very low CT, probably comfortable to call that influenza. But if all you do is give me no history and limited number of tests that you'll allow me to run, I can't necessarily confirm an etiology.
1: In sum, bad clinical history can help us a lot in the diagnostic process, for sure.
2: Yeah, just going back a little bit on the, on the limitations, I think it's really important for us to understand the, the limitations. But having said that, uh, acknowledging the limitations, as you said, Dr. Borough, this data can still be used at least to uh, allow people to ask some, some questions. One that's pretty kind of obvious when you look at the historic data is the recent kind of um, uh, increased number of diagnoses of streptococcus suis. And so the follow-up question for you is, based on your experience as diagnostician in interactions with the clients, uh, why, why is that? Uh, any any thoughts on, on that increased detection of S. Suic uh, in terms of diagnosis?
3: Yeah, I mean there there may be some underlying actual increase in overall strep, you know, disease. But I would say that one of the biggest drivers that I can see and what's different. So I've been you know doing this for eleven years. And I get a lot more requests now that say things like specifically looking for an isolate or looking for isolates to forward to a variety of companies to make an autogenous vaccine. And so I do think that's part of the driver, you know, is maybe in the past you'd see it in the field, a bunch of swollen joints, and you'd say, oh, this is likely strep, and we're going to medicate. Now they're seeing the swollen joints and saying we're going to send those to the laboratory, and in the laboratory we confirm strep. So it's not that the diagnoses weren't happening clinically uh, or weren't happening in the field, but we weren't seeing the samples. So that's a part of it. And another part would be uh, the NGS stuff that's going on now. There's an awful lot of more advanced typing of these isolates, so people want to, to learn more about what's in their system, so they're sending in things for us to, to more further characterize. So I think a lot of pieces get into it. I mean, you look at that graph, and it shows lots and lots of increased strep. There probably is some more strep, but there's also some of this that's just simply more, more questions, right, more cases um, looking for strep.
1: That, that makes a great transition for another question that I have here is that is these new tools that arrive, but the agency is still here. And if you look for some agents, they have like a kind of seasonal trend that occurs over time. And look specific for Lausone intercellulars, We have been seeing that years over years, a increasing number of diagnoses that are observed in third quarter of the year. That means July to uh, September. Do you have any insights? why that's ha- happening, and what that means.
3: Yeah, that's that's pretty neat. I like seeing that. You know, I and mean, this is one of these things that I think, anecdotally, people have mentioned in the past. You know, hey, we seem to see more Lausonia here in in the later part of the year. I wonder why that is. And now you can really see it bear out in the data. That's one of the powerful you know, uses of the tool. Here is that you can really go back and you can look at things in any period. You can look at things temporally, but you know, you want to know why. Uh, you know, obviously, there's. There's going to be lots of things impacting it. But one thing that I've thought about, you know, either the organism does better in the environment at that time of year, which increases the likelihood of pigs to get exposed, or I think it could also potentially be related to that we see less respiratory disease during that time of year versus in the wintertime and early spring. And so when you have lots of respiratory disease, you medicate heavily. If you're heavily medicating those pigs, you're going to keep Lausonia infections at bay. So there's a possibility that less antibiotic use in in the late summer uh, might correlate to an increased amount of Lausonia seen in the mm-hmm. fall. So, I mean, to me, it'd be one of those two things. It's either a change in how we're medicating these pigs, and therefore the Lausonia organism can grow better, or, you know, the warm environment later in the summer helps Lausonia as well. I mean, those would be two, again, they would be hypotheses, right, of mm-hmm. mine, that we could then test if we wanted to. Uh, maybe you could query the data again and try to say, okay, can we look at antibiotic-free systems? You know, is this a is this a trend that's being noted in systems that use antibiotics and not in antibiotic-free? You know, mm-hmm. if it's that, then maybe antibiotics are important. If it's across all production systems, regardless of antibiotic use, then maybe it's the environment.
1: Great point.
0: Yeah, great discussion. Thanks. Thanks for, for your comments. Everyone comments pretty good. Our final question here for you, Dr. Borough, is... We make this question for every, every special guest that we have here and would like to, to, to have your perspective. So what will be, in your opinion, the future of, of disease diagnostic, diagnostic and surveillance in the, in the swine industry?
3: Yeah, I think the discussion today kind of framed up a lot of the opportunities. Um, you know, the ability to screen for changes in disease incidents over time is really helpful. I think the better we are at categorizing cases up front like we are now with a new DX coding system that's more uniformly applied uh, will help you know, to, to actually address some diagnostic questions from the field. And then I think at some point it would really be interesting for me to see how the SDRS data has and potentially DX code data has been used by people in the field to change their mitigation efforts and what the response of that has been. I, mean, I really think you know, being able to look at historical information and, and patterns and see if that can help people to time things Going forward, and if we can change some of these seasonal things, right, and actually maybe mm-hmm. reduce disease incidents in those times. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thanks for for your comments. Was a great discussion, guys. That was it. What we have for for today's uh, report, and, and hope to see you guys next month. And that was it. Thank you. you Thank you.
1: Thank you. Okay.